Let's go to the Lord. Let's look to the word. Let's thank him. Because if he doesn't speak to us, everything else we have done is in vain. If he doesn't speak to us, that means he didn't receive our worship. He didn't, he didn't listen to our prayer. Everything, even the fellowship that follows, everything within the church would be meaningless if he doesn't speak to us. You heard last Sunday, there's only one thing Christ builds and that is his church. So this morning, Father, we just come to you. We come to you to the ministry of the word and we just surrender ourselves before thee and we pray, Father, speak to us, O Lord. We know you are a living God, but it's only when you speak to us, we know whether we are living or whether we are dead. There is no doubt about who you are. The doubt is about who we are. So speak to us this morning, Father. Let your word be living. Speak to us, correct us, exhort us, challenge us, chastise us, encourage us. We just leave it to you, Spirit of God. You are sovereign in this place, absolutely sovereign. We set no restrictions on you, Lord. This is your house. You are the Lord. You are the master. And your word says where the Spirit is Lord, there is liberty. And I pray, Father that we experience that liberty during the ministry of God's word and as we receive it, Father, for in Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, amen. We will go to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 24 to 28. That's what uh, we looked at yesterday in pastor's conference and uh, we, we just looked at a portion of it and we will look probably at a smaller portion of that today won't be very similar, yet won't be very different. We look to Hebrews 11, verses 24 onwards. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. 26. Esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And verse 28, by faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, lest he, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. For me, personally, personally, in the Old Testament you could... Uh, Agree to disagree, it's fine, because it's not relevant to salvation or doctrine. For me, the greatest in the Old Testament is Moses. Simply because in chapter 3 of the book of Hebrews, he's compared to Jesus. If any man can be remotely compared to Jesus, (laughs) you need to be really great. Because when it comes to faithfulness, scripture says Moses was faithful in the whole household of God as a servant. And Jesus as a son. And therefore Jesus is greater than Moses. So Moses is this, this, this incredible man. Incredible man in human history. Incredible man. But the question is, how did he become so great? How did he become so great? And if you read these verses, five verses, you will see the roadway to greatness in God's kingdom has steps has steps. It doesn't, doesn't come automatically. Maybe you are born again. 
or we are all born again. We have the seed that Christ in us. But that doesn't automatically mean you are destined for greatness. That does not mean you will fulfill your destiny. To fulfill your destiny, you need to realize that there is a pathway. Like yesterday I was telling the pastors, Moses is Moses because there are unknown people ahead of him. There are always unknown people who are playing the part. Okay, there are so many unknown people who have played part in our life because of their faith we reached thus far. So the record of Moses does not begin with Moses. If you start in the book of Exodus and not go to Genesis, but if you start from Exodus, it, it's because there was a Joseph. There was a young man, a teenager, who was willing to be dragged in chains to fulfill God's purpose in his life. That is why we have a Moses. And and then when Joseph dies, scripture says, there arose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. Joseph, A dispensation of a dynasty, another new dynasty has taken over. And what happens is he looks and he sees these Hebrews are too many. And so they decided to enslave them. So now slavery has started. The Jews are slaves in, in the Israelites are slaves in Egypt. But still they are multiplying. And he looks at them multiplying. It's always a game of numbers. And you always realize political powers are always scared of numbers. Okay, he's always uh, worried about numbers. So he, he calls two simple people. Today's language, nursing superintendent. Those days, midwives, chief midwives, tells them, when a Hebrew lady has a child, if it's a son, kill him. If it's a daughter, keep her. And I was telling them, from that day till today, it still, it still works. It's still the same thing. Whether it is ISIS or Boko Haram, anywhere you see ruthless regimes, they kill the boys and rape the girls. So that the girl will bear their child and be assimilated into their culture and their part. These are all part of history. And you need to realize, history doesn't change because that history is controlled by the devil and the devil's ways do not change. So there is these two midwives and scripture says they did not, they feared God. Therefore, they were not afraid of the king. They feared God, so they kept the children alive. Then you see two unknown people, you will see in the previous verse, you will see that Moses' parents, when they had Moses, Amram and Joshebed, their father and mother, they were also not afraid of the king's wrath, so they hid him. So you will always see in history there have been people who were not afraid of a Coritan boom. It's a modern day uh, Amram and Joshebed put together whose parents had, whose family hid the Jews in a secret room in Holland when the German Nazis had taken over and were searching for Jews. And they hid a lot of them. And finally, when they were caught, they were all arrested, sent into the concentration camp. She's the only one who came out alive. All her sisters, everybody died in the concentration camp. And she was one of the most incredible women of the last century. Incredible. Lived off a suitcase till the age of 84 or 86. Going everywhere God sent her, sharing the testimony of the goodness and the love of Jesus Christ who brought her out of a concentration camp. I'm telling you, you look at all these people and you realize, you know what, I'm not alone. All this have played their part in my history. And my history and your history should be his story. So there is Moses. And suddenly you have Moses. And you see the steps he takes to reach his destiny to that greatness we see revealed only in the new covenant. The first thing he does is in verse 
24, the first thing he does, he, he, different steps are there. Eight primary steps and the ninth one, which is the most important. Without the ninth, it's irrelevant what you and I do. It's irrelevant, let me tell you. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Second one, he chose affliction with God's people. Third one, he said no to the passing pleasures of sin. Three, he esteemed the reproach of Christ. Five, he turned his back to the treasures of Egypt. Six, he forsook Egypt. You have to have both. You need to do both. The children of Israel also forsook the treasures of Egypt, but did not turn their back to Egypt. In their heart, they carried Egypt. He forsook Egypt. Seven, he did not fear the wrath of the king. And eight, he endured. He endured. It's not enough to do all this thing. You have to endure it till the end because he who endures will be saved. And then the ninth thing he did was he, by faith, kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood. You can do all this eight, but without the blood, you and I go nowhere. Ultimately, it is his work that even gives us a destiny. So you can do one to eight and reach nowhere without the blood. So the ninth one is what is so important. He endured. We will leave James that one, okay? We will look at it another day. But why did he endure? The question is, why did he take these eight steps? Why did he endure till the end? What was the reason this great man, one of the greatest probably when we reach heaven, Moses would be one of the greatest has to be. It's impossible if you read the book of Revelation not to count him among the greatest because two songs are sung there in Revelation. One is the song of the Lamb, the other is the song of Moses. Imagine, okay, his song is being sung there. So incredible. So what made him great? How did he endure? How was he consistently able to keep these eight steps? Eight things you have to consistently take. Eight, all your life, refuse, choose, say no, esteem the reproach, turn your back to the treasures of Egypt, forsake Egypt, do not fear the wrath of different, different kings in different dispensations, and endure till the end. What is that made him do that? Verse 26 will say, in verse 26 of this 11, 26, he says, he looked to the reward. First thing is that there was a reward offered. That's why we motivate children. You do this, you'll get this. You do this, you'll get And if you want to endure till the end, you have to have your eyes on the reward. To the seven churches, Jesus offered seven different rewards. Kind of. But if you look at the rewards, rewards can be duplicated in the temporal. Eternal rewards can be duplicated in the temporal. So unless you are absolutely clear in your vision, you can follow it. So I want you to do and do a homework and see what's the difference between the reward that is offered to Smyrna and Philadelphia and why they are the only two overcoming churches in that record. Because God sees their heart and the reward that is offered is a slightly different. Okay. He looked to the reward. God offers us incredible things, unbelievable things in the coming dispensation, in the coming age. So please keep your eye on the reward to motivate you to run this race. And in verse 27, by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, 
for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. That's the main thing. That's the second thing. Why does he become the greatest? Because he saw a reward and he saw him who promised the reward. So the two questions today is, what do you see and who do you see will determine where you end up in eternity. What you see and who do you see. It will determine where you spend eternity and with whom you see eternity. That's why Revelation 22 says, in Zion, in that city, his servants will see his face and his name is on their forehead. They will serve him by seeing him face to face. So that will only matter to people who have seen him who is invisible. Now it's, it's a contradiction. How can you see somebody who is invisible? But that's the contradiction of faith and sight. So we are constrained by the visible. All around us is the visible. All around us the visible. But we do not even realize the very invisible, visible things of God's creation is talking about his invisible qualities. That's why God says in Romans 1.20, you are with no excuse. All these created things declare the creator. But the visible can be an unbelievable block to man and women and children, even believers. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, scripture says, we walk by faith. And not by sight. Because sight becomes the enemy of faith. Sight is the biggest enemy of faith. And Hebrews 11.1 tells you what exactly is faith. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. The invisible things. It's not talking about just primarily the temporary, temporary uh, invisible. Like you want to get into college, this college, sort of, it's, it's, it's invisible. It's in the future. But it is temporary. It's not eternal. You're not going to be in college forever and ever and ever. No. So you can use faith to reach out to the temporary invisible. That's what much of the teaching is. Or actually through the eyes of faith, see the eternal invisible and him who is invisible. I'm let to tell you, let me warn you as a father, as a pastor. Let me tell you, if you keep your eyes and use faith consistently only for the invisible, the temporary invisible, you will actually miss him who is invisible. That's exactly what happened to the children of Israel in the desert. Scripture says he gave them what they asked and sent leanness into their souls. Because they were never interested in him. They were only interested in what they could get out of him. Don't make that foolishness because half the preaching or three quarters of faith preaching in this life you hear around the world is using faith for the temporary invisible. And that's not what the Bible is talking about. It is talking about the eternal invisible. When that day faith will become sight. In a twinkling of an eye, faith will become sight. But till then, we walk by faith because we're not only looking at our reward, more than that, we're looking at him who promised in Romans 10, 17, scriptures tells you how faith comes. Then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So one of the foundational things about faith is faith comes by hearing. And to hear, somebody has to speak. Without speaking, I can. you are all sitting there and looking at me because you can hear me speak. You can hear me speak. Bartimaeus cried out, Jesus have mercy on me. It's because he heard the crowd say that Jesus was coming. Unless you hear, you cannot have faith. But to hear, you have to first believe there is somebody who speaks. 
most people have no get nothing out of the bible is because they are not reading the bible to hoping to hear god speak to them when you go and read the bible the bible is not called just a book it is called the word of god the invisible one who has given us a visible evidence of who he is so when i who am visible read that is visible i am expecting the invisible to speak to me and reveal himself to me otherwise we'll just pick up promises and miss the promise giver most so two things he heard he heard faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of god hearing from the word of god hearing from the word of god read the word expecting god to speak to you and when he speaks to you believe believe i'm telling you remember in matthew 28 29 when those two when he had come into the house the blind man came to him and jesus said to him do you believe that i'm able to do this do you believe that i'm able to do this do you think i can do this When you come to Jesus and when he speaks to you you also need to believe that he is able. Do you believe? So Moses saw two things he saw the reward and he saw the person. The reward motivates you to give up something for something bigger and greater. That's why you all go to college and school and wake up in the morning due tuitions because this sacrifice will leads to something better and greater in the future unless something is offered if you are told please study 6 hours a day go to school study wake up in the morning tuitions everything and then when you graduate you'll be jobless for the rest of your life nobody will study you've been promised something something you can become something that's what motivates you first motivation if you look in order but i don't necessarily it has to be reward and second is the person but the problem is that if you are not ultimately entrapped with love for that person the reward won't motivate you too long lot samson saul are all people who only saw the spoils of faith not the person behind that faith never realizing that it is a person that really matters the problem is let us say god says i will give you a name and prime minister modi offers you a name and you're not really entwined with christ you will compromise to get the name which modi offers are you getting the picture why did daniels and joseph stand till the end because they were being promised power authority name prestige everything but they said if we get it it will be by god and through god and not outside of god they were connected to god the devil was offering them same thing but they said not outside of god so please remember why did lot fail why did samson fail why did king saul fail because the eternal reward can be also duplicated in the temporal you can get the same thing a name you can get a name here you can get a wealth here you can get power here you can get authority here even life can be duplicated If you do not know eternal life is knowing him here you have the richness of life that's what happened to the rich fool who went to hell he had life dressed in splendor lived in splendor ate in splendor and he didn't even know he was a fool god calls him a fool therefore i call him a fool because he's called it first not me 
Why? He says, don't you know today you are going to die, you fool? You see, he, the devil offered a duplicate over here. The real life is there. It is not here. So when we pursue the duplicate without knowing the person, you can get trapped by the person. Trapped by the person. Sorry, trapped by the duplicate. That's why eternal life is actually knowing God, not escaping hell. It's not about escaping hell. It's about knowing God. So in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, Paul sitting in, no pastor today, if you're sitting like that, unless he really knows God, will ever say these things. Like I was telling the pastor, a crook dies in the bar, drunk, has a stroke and dies. Next day his wife puts, he's fought the good fight, I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. It's, it's become such common over there. People don't even realize what this means. This man has lost everything. His ministry, Asia has turned his back. Nobody searched for him in prison except one guy. He says, only Luke is with me. He gave his life, entire life for Jesus. That's the previous verse. I have poured out my entire life for Jesus and sitting in chains, awaiting execution. He has the gumption to say, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race and I have kept the faith because he was not running after just the reward. He was running after Christ as his reward. You read Philippians, you will know this is a man who is running after Christ and he knows he's got him. And he promises is this, finally there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his His appearing, not his reward. His appearing. Those who are actually looking, looking, looking forward to Jesus coming. So this is where it starts. Moses endured, became an overcomer in the Old Testament terms. An incredibly great man to whom God could actually literally, in whichever way you want to translate it, speak face to face because he sought Christ above everything. But when Moses comes of age... Exodus 2 and verse 11. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown. Or Moses came of age. So what is that age? Like I said, when you study scripture, study it carefully, study it thoroughly, you have to look at Acts 7 and verse 23 where it says, but when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart. 40 years old. So we presume it was at the age of 40. Why did it take God 40 years to touch this man who is supernaturally actually called and set apart by God even in his mother's womb is because he was so immersed in the world. He was soaked in the Egyptian world. When you are soaked in the world, it's very difficult for God to touch you. And I'm telling you honestly for some of you who have heard and heard and heard and heard and heard and heard, it doesn't reach you. It's because you are so soaked in the world. So soaked in the world. The world has soaked him. Soaked him. And that's why it took him. Called and chosen by God to deliver Israel. And he is so soaked in the world. It took God 40 years before he could touch. If you remember the old sermons and all. Remember God divides the church or the people within the body of Christ into three categories. Which is children, young men and fathers. Talking about spiritual categories. And when it comes to children and young men, what is that you know about young men? Young men is that they have the word of God lives strongly in them and therefore they have overcome the evil one. That's a young man. He's not ready to overcome anything. 
At 40, he's still a child. He's not ready to overcome anything. If you look at Genesis 37 and verse 2, it's an incredible introduction. You have to read Bible carefully. This is not a storybook. This is the book about his story, his life, and he's a living person, so it is not a story, it is his life. This is the history of Jacob. Interesting, right? This is the history of Jacob. And it doesn't talk about Jacob, it talks about Joseph. Here is the man who's become Israel. Here is the man who's still not moved ahead and really become Israel. And he's got these 12 children, and the history of Israel, which is Jesus Christ, which is the story of Jacob, can flow through only one boy who is 17 years old and the others are not even part of that history because they are so immersed in the world and there is one guy who is spiritual and scripture says, this is the history of Jacob and Joseph was 17 years old. Why are we introduced to Joseph at the age of 17? And you see at 17 he's a young man, spiritually ready to battle the powers of darkness and win because his babyhood, his child life, spiritually is not even meant is overcome it by the age of 17. So we are introduced to a man at the age of 17 and God says, this is the history of Israel with Joseph. He's not a child. Though he's the youngest among 11. Yet he's a young man. The word of God dwells richly in him. He's ready to be tested and to be found he can overcome. This is the history of Israel. The word of God is strong. If you look at 1 John 2.14. I have written to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. It was God who supernaturally used the hatred and the hands of his own elder brothers to sell him as a slave because he knew if he stayed at home, his very father's sentimental love would destroy his destiny. Okay, we get very sentimentally attached to our children and never release them for God's purpose. That's what happened to Joseph. That's what, oh, now my soul was yoked to him. I want to die. I no longer want to live. The guy who met God at Peniel saw him face to face. Destiny has been changed. The minute his brothers bring this coat with blood on it, Jacob doesn't want to live anymore. Next 22 years is gone sitting in the armchair doing nothing. His history has stopped there. Therefore, his history is continued through the life of Joseph who is living. For God. Then when Benjamin, they come back and said, Oh, Benjamin has to be taken back. He shouts at them, Why did you tell about Benjamin? Oh, death has come upon me. My Joseph is gone. Now only Benjamin is there. It's because he was yoked to Rachel and now he sees Rachel in these two boys. The carnality of the human soul, the carnality of affections which is not surrendered before God, that therefore we are never able to overcome And God is teaching us these lessons. Never be attached to anybody or anyone like that other than God. You will never be able to fulfill your destiny. That's why at 40, Moses is not ready. And he literally falls by the sword in anger. So he's ready only at 80 for God to actually meet and encounter him. He's only ready at 80. Joseph lived, like I said, in the midst of 10 wicked brothers. But his father's influence was what that kept him till 17. In First Samuel chapter 1 verse 24, you will see, now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her. Hannah sheltered and protected her firstborn Samuel completely. She was the only influence in his life. Powerful, godly 
influence. Elkanah had no influence in Samuel's life. It was Hannah's entire influence over Samuel's life. How do you know? Because you need to read chapter 2 of Samuel. Go back home and read chapter 2 of Samuel. You know what? You have the song of Deborah. You have the song of Mary. You have song, song, song of Moses and the children of Israel. These are all songs that come out of triumph. But when she surrendered Samuel at the temple to the Lord, it is not written the song of Hannah. It is written the prayer of Hannah. She was a woman who was defined by prayer before the birth of Samuel, after the birth of Samuel, and through it all, her life is defined by the one who is invisible in prayer. And she is the one who influences Samuel. So you will receive the record of Samuel. He's a praying man because his mother was a praying woman. And his father had no influence on him at all. Because his father had no influence on him, he fails as a father. Jesse had no influence on David. Therefore, David fails as a father. Moses fails as a father. These are all people who failed as fathers but had incredible experiences and successful ministries and often because of a godly mother. So you will see in Judges 5.1, it is called song. Exodus 15.1, it is called song. In Luke, if you read about Mary, it is called song. All these songs were a result of triumph, a response of victory. But Hannah's prayer comes out of sacrifice. You gave me a son. I have done what I could do. I have weaned him off milk, meaning now he's ready to eat meat. And now I hand him over to you completely. And it is Hannah's prayer, not Hannah's song. Please remember, this is what ultimately will define you and me. It will be. Like I said, Jesse, Moses, all these people had no influence in their home. Uh, David and all. While Moses is of age only at 40 And at 40, he had to make some tough decision. Life-changing decision. At 40, he had to make. And that's the first decision all of us will have to make after our salvation if you want to continue this journey. Otherwise, we'll be stuck in babyhood, childhood, believer. The first decision is, who am I? Who am I? Who am I? What's my identity? He has another identity which the world has given. You are the Pharaoh's daughter's son. The first thing he has to decide is, who am I? And everywhere, millions upon millions upon millions, not in the past ages, still today, what you are facing through is our identity. It's an identity crisis. A government has come over five years, they got a second term. They are trying to change the identity of this nation. In America, what you're happening is a crisis of identity. Europe, because of mass immigration, what you're talking about. What are we as an individual? Who am I as an individual? What are we as a nation? Ultimately, if they succeed, they will all tell everybody. You may be a Christian, but say you are a Hindu Christian. Your identity first is as a Hindu and then as a Christian. What is your identity? Who do you think you are as an individual? Who do you think you are in terms of nation? Who do you think? This is something believers had to go through for 2,000 years. And Jews had to go for over 5,000 or more years. 
And it, it, the, you can answer this question. You can never find the answer to this question. Who am I as a person? Who are we as a nation? Unless you answer the third question. The third question is not who you are, what you are. The third question is the most que- important question. Whose are you? Whose are you? Whose am I? Whose am I? Whom do I belong to? That's why the, at the end, at the judgment throne of Christ, the entire creation, angelic creation and human creation will suddenly be divided into sheep and goats, rebellious angels and obedient angels will be divided into two because one set knew whose they were. The others refused to say, we belong to everybody. I am my own king. Whose are you? Because without knowing whose you are, you will not know who you are. Sheep or goat? Obedient angels or fallen angels? Or let's put it the other way. Fallen angels or standing angels? Who am I? Whose am I? So how do I know whose I am? Or how do I even know I am searching to know whose I am? I like it. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, 11, young Samuel. And when she had weaned him, she took him up. Yeah, Elkanah went to his house, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest, which means under Eli the priest. How do you know Samuel knew who he was? Because he was under somebody. Eli had his own sons. You know what the next verse says? That's why the contradictions in the Bible. You know what the next verse? Now the sons of Eli were corrupt and they did not know the Lord. Here is a man, his own sons, and he has a little boy who is under him. Whose are you? Are you getting the picture? So God had to put Moses for 40 years in the wilderness before he can encounter God. And you know, when he encounters God at the age of 80, which is in Exodus chapter 3, you know how Exodus chapter 3 begins? It says, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro for 40 years. He kept this prince of Egypt under a shepherd so that he would learn who he was. You know why Jesus told the Roman centurion, I have never seen faith like this in Israel. It's because his answer was, I am a man under. Under. See, when Milton writes his famous uh, poem, most famous, Paradise Lost, he talks about Satan's kingdom and his throne. And the term he actually, Milton uses is, he sat himself exalted. Sat himself exalted, if I'm right. I'm going back 35 years in memory, okay? The last time I read Paradise Lost. He exalted himself and sat. Said, I'm not under anybody. Not under anybody. Forty years under somebody, tending somebody else's flock. God says, you know why? Because you are so immersed in power and authority and riches and pleasure in Egypt. Boy, you are called by me. 
you're not ready to be used by me until I have taught you how to stay under. Then in verse 2 onwards, you see the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. The same thing. What I told in the last day in the other country, you were all there in the first day. You all heard and you all heard through the same years, but some among you said, we want a second look. We're coming for the second meeting. You did. I didn't invite you. You came. Then you said, we are coming for the third meeting. Then you decided, we are going to stay till the end. Everybody saw the fire. I believe there were many, many shepherds in the wilderness. As usual, they all take. He looked, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight. Why the bush does not burn? He says, you know what? I need to take a good look at it. Why is this bush is not it's burning? He is the only one who turned aside and went close for a second look. You know what verse 4 says? Verse 4 says, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God spoke. And God doesn't usually speak to the ones who come for one meeting and walks out. They said, you know what? I want to hear this again. I want to hear this again. I want to hear this again. I heard the message today. It's come up WhatsApp in the evening. You know what? I want to listen to it again. And suddenly you realize, you know what? He didn't speak to me through the Sunday service. He spoke to me when I listened to it a second time. These are the questions you need to ask. Do you really think God is worth a second look? These are decisions. I was telling the church, you know what? I don't know when I actually believed. I really do not know. All I know is that God did this miracle in my life which I thought was a tragedy at that point of time that he shut down the boarding school where all my elder brother and siblings were studying and put me in my grandfather's home and I had to go in two buses. I who never... I opened my door, school was there, dad was principal, suddenly out of the blue, 12 year old boy having to walk 5 kilometers, catch up us. And the only kid to go to a Protestant school where there was chapel, where there were songs and there were sermons. And my town in Kerala is very famous for conventions. And every paddy season, a harvest season later, the whole area is full of pandals and these guys in white and white and white and come and fear, speak fire and brimstone, literally fire and brimstone. I just couldn't help myself to go there as a school student and sit there alone from my house, walk down, sat in a night and listen to them because something said, I don't know what it was. So I honestly... I accepted, knelt down and accepted Jesus on that day, you know, under graduation. But I really do not know, was I saved before that? I don't know. Why is that this word always messed my mind up and I was drawn to it? And I remember these guys, they're powerful preachers. They treat you like Gentiles. But their word is so powerful that if you don't love the world, you will not go near them. The word, you won't go. And in their churches, it is all white. Everybody is in white. Only white. And in that mass of white, I as a student in colors dress sat in the middle, not looking to the left or the right, keeping my eye on the pulpit. All I wanted was to listen to the word and run away. And I really believe those days I didn't know him. But I really believe he knew me. He knew me. My question is that, do you think it's worth a second look? I still don't understand why people are not captivated by God and his word. 
I'm not talking about unbelievers. I'm talking about believers. <laughs> unbelievers have got nothing to do with this. We are talking about believers. Why is that? Why is that? And you know what God said? Moses, take off your sandals. I'm ready to speak to you. I'm ready to speak to you. Do you realize that God spoke to Joseph? Moses, sorry, uh, Joshua, Moses laid, he received the spirit, Moses is dead, God speaks, ark goes forward, they cross river Jordan, the circumcision, everything, all that, and then God watches. I pray, believe it is somewhere in the night, Joshua goes and is looking at Jericho, he's called me to battle. How am I going to take this down? And then he sees a man with a drawn sword. He says, are you for me or for us? He said, no, neither. This is who I am. And he says, take off your sandals. See, God always reveals himself to these people who go for the second look and not satisfied with the status quo. Please take these things seriously. Very, very seriously. Because the thing is that if you want to Fulfill your destiny eternally. You have to make very, very serious decisions in your life. The first decision is got to do with identity. With identity. Can God trust somebody who doesn't really identify with him? That's a question. His father could trust Joseph because Joseph identified himself with his master. With his father. Basically his father is God. Potiphar could trust himself completely everything. Because Joseph identified with his God. In the prison, the prison warden could trust him with everything. Because Joseph only saw his identity in God. And in Genesis 41 and verse 41, this is what the Pharaoh says. It's incredible what the Pharaoh says. Pharaoh said to Joseph, see I have set you over all the land of Egypt. All the land. I'm putting in charge. I'm putting you in charge. It's, 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 it's a picture of what will happen in eternity. Those who identified with Jesus and was willing to make the choices through life a day, God will say, you know what? I'm putting you in charge. Now KCR rules. When Jesus comes, somebody will rule over Telangana. It will be nobody, none of us know. Some poor pastor or lady from some village in Telangana who had identified himself or herself completely with Jesus. And God says, you take charge. You take charge. Suddenly a prisoner, a slave, sitting in prison, is put in charge of all of Egypt. Not because of Pharaoh, but because how this man had found his identity only in Christ. And in verse 44 he says, I am Pharaoh and without your concern, no man lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. I give you complete authority above you, only me. But everybody has to come to you. Nobody comes to me. Everybody comes to me through you. That's what God tells to Jesus. I have exalted you, put you above everybody. Everybody comes to me through you. You are in charge. Because that's the road. That's why I told them. But about Joseph and David and all Daniel and all, they went down and they went up. From down they went up. David from down they went up. From Daniel from down went up. Moses is not that. From up he went down. Like Jesus. 
That's the difference of Moses. These were all simple Hebrew boy, a slave become prime minister, slave becomes prime minister, shepherd becomes king. Here king becomes a slave. Ordinary shepherd. He was up and he went down. That's why Moses' life is incredibly different from others. And that's God is talking about. At the age of 30, his entire identity is merged with Jesus. And his loyalty to Pharaoh is absolute. You have to see pictures of Jesus Christ and God in Joseph's relationship with Pharaoh. And when there is a famine in the land, people come to him. He said, okay, give me your land. They give you, what is the point of living he owns? They come, he says, give me your flocks. Belongs to Pharaoh. Then he says, we have again famine. He says, give me your life. So by the time the famine was finished, scripture says, except for the priest, every man's life, land and possessions belong to Pharaoh. That's exactly what Jesus is trying to do, to see that every man's life, possession and everything belongs to God and God alone. And that's Joseph. That's the purpose of preaching. Not to make you independent, but entirely dependent upon God. Not to belong to yourself, but so that your entirety belongs to God. And these are the patterns we will study in the Bible. Who is Joseph? Who is Moses? What is God doing through these people? Because it has got to do with who I am. So the answer to who you are or what we are as a nation is not found in history. It's found in the Bible. Whose am I? And Paul, the greatest in the new covenant for me, Philippians 1.21 says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He merged his entire identity in Christ. In Hebrews 10.7, when Jesus comes, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book, it is written on me, to do your will, O God. Jesus has merged his entire identity with God. Entire identity with God. And that's what you heard last Sunday from Corinthians. The question being asked, examine your faith. Please examine yourself, whether you are in the faith, test yourself. What is the answer? There is only one answer. Not that I go to church, not that I fast, not that I pray, not that I do all these things. I do all the social work. None of that answers make any difference because Hindus and Muslims could be found, could be doing more than that. None of these answers matter. The only answer is that Jesus Christ is in you. If Jesus Christ in me is in me, then I am dead. He's alive. My identity is merged with him. I don't have an identity independent from him, outside of him. So the question is, you heard last Sunday, the first beginning of it is, it's a revelation. Simon, son of Jonah, flesh and blood. This is not human. This not reveal this to you. You have a revelation. The question is, Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus had a revelation. Who are you, Lord? Jesus of Nazareth. Immediate question. In Acts chapter 9, verse 6, which NIV has conveniently taken away because the NIV editors do not like surrender. They are independent. So, I'm not joking. I asked some of the Nepalis, how come some of your translations are so wonky? They said because there were no believers to translate. So we had to get the pundits and they were drinking and translating. No wonder it was wonky. Because where do you find scholars to translate? Lord, what do you want me to do? So you have a revelation. 
You heard last Sunday. This begins with revelation. Salvation begins with revelation. This is who you are. If this is who you are, then I don't have to ask anymore, who am I? I find my identity in you. The next question is, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Let me honestly ask you young people sitting over here. How many of you really asked this question yesterday, day for yesterday, the last week, the last month, or whole of these three weeks, starting in the morning saying, what do you want me to do? Why is that it is written in Mark 1.35, the previous incredible day of ministry. Early in the morning, Jesus rose, went to a solitary place, and was in prayer. What was he there for? To ask his father, what do you want me to do? Then the disciples come and said, the people are waiting for you. He said, no, let's go to other place, because for this purpose I came to preach. I'm not talking about making random decisions. You're already fixed in places. But even in those fixed places, is there surrender? Do you expect something to happen in your life today? Something that it is when it happens, you know it is only God. It's only God. But how can God do something in your life unless you ask him, what do you want me to do? Because don't you see in Revelation 23, he knocks at the door of the heart. He doesn't break the door open. He doesn't kick the door open. He is the Lord of everything. He can command from the elephant to the snail, get into Noah's ark. And you don't know where from where all these people came. If the snail had to come to the Middle East from Russia or from India, before Noah started building, the command was given to the snail, move. We don't know where they all came from. But everyone was commanded, go. But to mankind alone was the door kept empty and the doorkeeper is waiting. He and his family is in. Still seven days the door is open because God does not force anybody to do anything unless you ask him, what do you want me to do? So my question is, if you know whose you are, have you asked him, what do you want me to do? He gets an answer. Go into the city. You will be told what to do. Go. Just be told. Does he go? He goes. No, 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 I'm not going until you tell me what you want me to do. I don't, I don't have time to waste. You know, I'm very busy unlike you. You're just sitting in the throne doing nothing. I'm very busy. I have to go to college and school, office. He goes. Verse 11 is what is interesting. This is to Ananias. Arise, go to the street called straight. One day I want to preach on this, that if you want to hear God, you need to find the street that is called straight. Then you will get further instruction. Don't go to any street, go to a street that is called straight. Okay, now don't look for Hyderabad, any street like that. That's not what I meant. <laughs> Inquire at the house of Judas for one, called Saul of Tarsus, for behold... Spring. See, everybody prays. But God mentions only about this man that he's praying. Three days. He says he's praying. I see him praying. He's praying. When God says somebody is praying, it can be absolutely sure he's praying. He's not playing, he's praying. He was told to go to the city and told to wait. He chose to pray. You see the difference? Look at the pattern established in the Bible. Acts chapter 1 verse 4. Having been assembled together, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. He says, go to Jerusalem and 
Wait. What did Saul of Tarsus? Go to Damascus and wait. What is Saul doing? Praying. Go to the next verse. And being... No, 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 no. X. Yeah. Don't go ahead of me. As such, I think I speak fast. Pastor Vijay speaks faster. And Brother Cyril speaks the fastest. No, the next one. Oh. Acts chapter... No, 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 no. Acts chapter 1. I'm sorry. Apologies. I didn't give it to you. Acts chapter 114. 114. They said, go wait in Jerusalem. What we do, we all go wait in Jerusalem, hoping with our feet on the table, waiting for watching TV. Because God said, only said, wait. And we are waiting. We are waiting. I'm waiting. How long have we been waiting for the past 14 years? Why? Reason? They all continued in one accord in prayer. God told him to wait. He chose to wait and pray. He asked them to pray. Wait. They chose to wait and pray. In Acts chapter 6 verse 4 we saw because we will give ourselves continually to prayer. Why? Because that's your identity. If you know Jesus Christ, you know your identity is in him, it's defined in the prayer closet. Any man who is in Christ will pray because he knows that is his connection to his father. And if you don't pray, check your identity. Whether you are in Christ or not. Who am I? Where am I? Who am I under? Do I have a prayer life? And all you do is wait and be still. That is what God is teaching Moses. In Exodus chapter 2 verse 25 says, God looked upon the children of Israel and he acknowledged them. What did he acknowledge? They were crying and groaning in their slavery. He says, I heard you. I heard you. Why are you not doing anything? Because I'm preparing my man in the desert. When he's ready, I shall move. God's answers are not the way you think. He heard their cry. His solution is getting ready in the backside of the desert because he spent too much time in the palace. He has to get every drop of Egypt out. 40 years in the palace, 40 years in the desert. So you have cleaned your mind out before you can go out deliver my people. Otherwise you will become an Aaron and make the image of God into a golden calf. Why? Because before Moses can know who I am, he has to know whose he is. And he will always realize when you read the record in Genesis, the first five books, the people never accepted Moses' leadership. You know that? Because they didn't want to identify with God the way he identified with God. Though the tent of meeting was open and he goes there, he comes with a shining face, people will stand from water. The tent was open for anybody. Nobody went. They didn't want that identity. They just wanted to get out of Egypt. Only the second generation. But God was working here. Here is Moses absolutely identified with God, walking in the camp. The first generation doesn't regard him. They don't want him really, but they have no choice because it was not an election. It was an appointment. If it is election, he would have lost. I don't know how many he would have got two words. Joshua and Caleb. I don't know whether his brother and sister would have voted for him. So, ministry is not by election. It is by selection. So he was selected by God and the people disliked him intensely because he's a man who will not compromise. He has no Egypt in him, though he lived in Egypt for 40 years, in the palace. No Egypt in him at all. 
Are you seeing the difference? But the second generation saw him differently, not their fathers. Look at Joshua chapter 1 and verse 17. Just as we heeded Moses in all things. So you realize when the father said no, the sons were saying yes. In the same place. Even in the most incredibly difficult situation, they said yes. And the most incredible decision was when God told about Korah, Abiram and uh, Dathan. Move away from the tents of the wicked. And the earth is opening, I believe, like a cinema. Like no Hollywood could capture it. At the last moment, the sons of Korah abandoned their parents and run over to Moses' side. So you have the sons of Korah writing the songs. Because scripture says in the Chronicles record, but the sons of Korah did not perish. Incredible choices are being made. So there was a generation who said, we will heed Moses as Moses is heeding God. The only thing they asked from Joshua is that please walk with God as he walked with God. We ask you nothing. And the same is true with Samuel. You need to understand what I am trying to say. If you know whose you are, you will be always under. There are no independent freaks in God's kingdom. Only in the world. Because devil is an independent freak. You need to understand devil is an independent freak. He's a rebel. That's why sheep and goats, they are of the same caliber, same DNA, absolutely different. The sheep has no horns, nothing to defend, entirely dependent upon the shepherd. It will walk slowly after wherever the shepherd goes, the other fellow will jump like this. He will never walk in a straight line. Have you ever seen a goat walk in a straight line? It would be interesting to find one who walked in a straight line. The same true about Samuel. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 3, 19 and 4, 1. So Samuel grew. The Lord was with him. Let none of his words fall to the ground. All of Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. And scripture says, the Lord appeared again in Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord came from Samuel to the entire. Please remember, even Samuel prophetic visions, dreams and all, he revealed him to by the word. And the word of the Lord came from Samuel. But what is interesting is this. In chapter 4, 5, 6, you don't see Samuel. You, don't. you can have revelation. You can have divine everything. But you don't move if God doesn't tell you to move. And the people don't want you. You know that? In chapter 4, you have war. The Philistines are going to fight the, the Israelites. In the first battle, they lose. And the people ask for the ark to be brought. And who goes with the ark? Hopni and Phineas. They don't ask for Samuel. They don't ask for Samuel. Samuel is there. And everybody knows he's the one who's speaking. God. But they don't want him. Please don't misunderstand. People don't want godly people. People are not interested in people like Moses and uh, uh, Samuel and David and all. The only reason they accepted him grudgingly is because they knew the presence of God was with them. Do you really think people love David? If people really loved and appreciated David and his piety and his love for God, how is that when Absalom took over, the whole nation went with Absalom? I'm teaching you things which I teach pastors, okay? I said, don't look for appreciation of people. Try to please God. Because it's, it's a snare. It's a pit if you try to be popular and pleasing to the people. Because people want leaders of their own kind. That's why they pick Saul. They don't want people who are after God. 
after God. So as sheep, when you go to other places, always check what kind of leadership you want because it's a test of your heart. It's only in chapter 7, verse 1. What is that? 3, 4, 5, Hopneas, Phineas dead, Eli dead, Ark goes to Philistine, the temple is, the Dagon falls, everything. And here it has been brought back to the Israelite territory. It's, it sits in a place called Kiriath. Chariot. Uh, there in the house of this man, Abinadab, if I'm right. And what does chapter 7 say? The men of, yeah. Kirja Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord, brought it in the house of Abinadab on the hill, consecrated Eliezer's son to keep the ark of the Lord. And you know this dude, Eliezer? When the ark, Samuel, sorry, David is bringing many years later, this guy is even missing. Others too were familiar with the ark, this guy is not even interested. The fellow who is consecrated with the ark is not even found that day. Imagine today I am supposed to preach, I don't even come to church. It's like Josiah says, oh, while we were cleaning the money in the treasury, we were looking in the treasury, we found the book of the law. <laughs> the word of the Lord was lost in the house of the Lord. We just found it. Where did you lose your lunch? In the kitchen. <laughs> Sometimes you look at this and you say, Lord, is it like me? I've got all these Bibles all around and I got lost in the middle of your word. I got lost in the middle of this. Look at this. The guy who was consecrated to keep the ark on the day the ark is being brought is not found. His two brothers are so familiar with it and one of them dies. One is missing, one is dead. If so it was that the ark remained there a long time. It was there 20 years and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Do you see 4, 5, 6 and all? Samuel is there. God is silent. And he's not using Samuel. He says sit down there. Just sit down there quietly. Just sit down there. You know what the next verse is? Then Samuel spoke to all of Israel. When they started lamenting after is God, God says, this is the time to speak because now they are ready. Now they are. So here is Israel crying and groaning and all. God says, I acknowledge your tears, I acknowledge your cries, but you're not ready. When you're ready, I'll send my man. By the way, I'm my man is there for 40 years Bible college. He's the guy who went to Bible college for the longest period, 40 years. Because it is called BD, backside of the desert. <laughs> 40 years. Everybody goes for 3 years, MD 2 years. He went for 40 years. So please don't ever think and interpret God's ways without knowing God's word. And then Samuel spoke. You know why? Because to most people, God cannot speak because of an identity crisis. He cannot speak. And sometimes it's very dangerous. It is good that God doesn't speak unless you're consecrated. That's what he told in Ezekiel, right? If you go to one of my prophets with an idol in your heart. I spoke about that in that second day in that seminar in the pastor's conference in that country. I said, I showed them. I could see the shock. Literally, you could feel the shock waves. My God, after that meaning, during the break, I had people kneeling down and saying, sorry, sorry, sir, we got it. I wanted to go to US. I wanted to go to Australia. I wanted to go to this thing. I realized this was my idol. And I thank God he did not answer according to my idol. Because our God is an idol breaker. Are you getting the picture? 
When is God really willing to speak to us? Honestly. I'm talking about, I'm not talking about, about irrelevant prayer of answers. I'm talking about God speaking to us. Like God spoke to Moses. Like God spoke to Abraham. Abraham knew my covenants, my law, my precepts. Law was given through Moses. That was for the land, for the, the nation. Before that, Abraham knew. Why? Because I talked to him. This is who I am. You want a closer relationship? This is what you need to do. Then we can walk together. Oh, Noah came out and put all this sacrifice. Noah, how did he know? Because he told me. Um, by the way, Abraham, you met Melchizedek. He gave you blood, um, wine and bread and you gave him tithes. Tithes, but it is in the law. That is for you guys. He already told me you need to give me 10%. You see, when you get to know God, he reveals himself to you. But he cannot reveal himself to people who don't surrender. And our problem is we got this streak of Lucifer in us. We won't surrender. I'm telling you honestly, using names which are relevant. Lucifer. So God heard. I always ask this question. You have this New Testament, all the epistles from Romans onwards to Hebrews. People debate about who wrote Hebrews. I have no debate. I say Paul wrote it. That's why they put it in the middle. After, no? Paul wrote it. For me it is Paul. We, we don't, it doesn't matter. Let's say 12 or 13. Let me ask you this question. How could God use a man to write 13 letters in the New Covenant? And problem, it, they were letters. They were letters. It is not like the Old Testament, thus says the Lord God of Israel. Nothing. This is letters. I, me, and send your greetings, beginning, this thing, I, this thing. It's all letters. Letters to churches, letter to Timothy, second letter to Timothy, one to Titus, one to Philemon, and God says that's scripture. How can a letter be a scripture? Because he says, you don't understand young man. That man thinks like me. So he speaks, he speaks for me. Because there's no difference in thinking. He's got my son's mind. So when he writes, he's writing for me. Are you getting, it's only one place in Second, First Corinthians 7 where he says, but I Paul, and puts in brackets, I have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit says, put it there, I am sanctioning, it is not you, I who is saying it. How can a man become like that? How can a man become like that, that he actually writes letters and God says, that is scripture. Where Peter will write in his last letter, you know, people mess up, in, misinterpret scripture like they do with the letters of Paul. Meaning Peter is saying, Paul's letter has become scripture for me. I am reading and learning from Uncle Paul who came after me. Are you getting to know what this book is and what it can do to you? What this God can do to you and use you? But first is the identity. You have to decide. Look at Philippians 3 and you will realize why this man became who he was. We're looking at different people, but primarily Moses here is Philip and Paul. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Stock of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is the law, blameless. What things were gained to me, I have counted loss for. Ah, he says, this was my resume. You know what? I tore my resume, threw in the rubbish bin and said, this is who I am in Christ and Christ alone. For me to live is Christ and die is gain. I find my identity in him and him alone. And God says, that's the guy I was looking for so far. My son trained 12, one jumped the ship. Then after many years, I got another one. That's the guy I'm going to use to write scripture. His identity was established in Christ. You have to come to that point where you are able to say, I have no other identity. No other identity. 
In Galatians chapter 2 verse 11 to 13. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him in his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And verse, and the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with him in their hype. He's talking about Peter, the top guy, top gun. He's talking about Barnabas who mentored him. He says, you know what, none of them are sure about their identity in Christ yet. Not still, still backing off. Still got a split identity. When there are no Jews, they will eat with the Gentiles. When the Gentile Jew comes in, they will separate from the Gentile believers because you have identity crisis. You still have been identified completely with Christ. That's why God uses Paul to write Ephesians and says, in Christ, the Jew and the Gentile has become one. And I asked them, why is that you have the shofar and the star of David? Why do you think the, you, the Israelite will save us? I said, the Jew has to be saved through Christ. There is no identity called uh, Yahudi today. That's why they will only believe when he comes. And they will cry as to one who appears. Even then for a Jew to be saved, even when Jesus comes, they have to believe he is the one who came first and died on the cross. There is no salvation apart from Jesus for the Jew or Gentile. And he has made them one. Now we are exalted. Yes, we pray for Israel. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But I am not Jew. My identity is in Christ. I don't wave the flag of Israel and blow the shofar. People who do it are not still sure. Here they want, that's the same hypocrisy of Barnabas and Peter. They want to be Jewish. Because they are not sure about their identity. And the first thing Moses dealt with was with his identity. He said, you know what? I am not the son of the Pharaoh. I am not. I don't belong to this world. I am not the son of the ruler of this, son of the ruler of this world. I belong to God and his people. Unless you are clear and have decided about your identity, you and I are going nowhere. You will struggle, especially because the crisis around the world is about identity. Who are you? Who are you? What's happening in Assam? It's about identity. What's happening in America? It's about identity. What's happening in Africa? It's about identity. South Africa is supposed to be Christian. So for a long time, the whites were ruling the blacks. Now the blacks are killing the whites because you have got name of Christ and have never understood your identity in Christ. Hutus and what were Tutsis killing in the hundreds and thousands. All were Christians. All were Christians. Because we haven't understood who we are. He never saw himself apart from Christ. And you have to look at the hypocrisy of these people. Who is Peter? Peter was a fisherman. A fisherman will still eat with the Gentile. Who was Paul? He was a Jew of the Jews. A Pharisee of Pharisees. Could have been become. To get letters from the high priest, you have to have access to the high priest's house. You have to have connections. You really need to know the high priest to be able to get letters. That is how well he is connected. He says, you know what? I am none of that. I am none of that. When I am in Christ, God has made both of us and we are one. We are no Jew nor Gentile. We are just in Christ. That's my identity. That's my question to you. What is your identity? was all he had to, you had to, he, you know where he received this? Where he received this revelation? He received it on the road to Damascus. Who are you, Lord? Jesus. 
Acts 9.4 Then he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I'm sure three days in the darkness is struggling with this. What did Jesus say? I am Jesus and you are persecuting me. But I didn't persecute him. I didn't persecute him. I only persecuted the Christ, the Christians. And he's saying you're persecuting me. Meaning, you mean to say, Lord, you don't see your identity apart from the church? Then how can the church see its identity apart from him? Did you get? He had a stroke of revelation on that road. He is Christ. The church is his body. They are one. Therefore, I have no identity apart from the church. And it doesn't matter what kind of people get into the church. That's my brethren. It could be Gentile. It could be Jew. It could be ex-prostitute, ex-murderer, ex-criminal, Shudra. You world can give names. It is irrelevant to me. That is my family. That's my identity. I have no other identity. Make sure you are sure of your identity. Otherwise, you will choose where you can go. You will not go where you are sent. Do you have that identity? Yes. Are you getting it? Like everything is divided in the Bible into threes. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, the three kings, outer court, inner court, all that you know, right? So is every man divided into three. The carnal, the intellectual, and the spiritual. Are you getting in the picture? The carnal, the intellectual, and the spiritual. Only the spiritual can fellowship with the intellectual and the carnal. The carnal will only fellowship with the carnal. The intellectual will only fellowship with the intellectual. That's why he says the spiritual man judges all things and he is not judged. Why? He judges himself. Lord, this carnal little baby Christian is part of me. This intellectual puffed up, puffed rice is also part of me. Samson was carnal. Solomon was intellectual. David was spiritual. Samuel, Sam, sorry, Saul was carnal. Samson was intellectual, um, Solomon was intellectual, David is spiritual. What did Saul build? A monument for himself. No idea of temple, altar, nothing. He's not interested, only building monuments. No, if Saul was to be living today, he, you know, he would have called King Saul Ministries. That's what he would, and he put his and his wife's picture and we all carts and vehicles and going. That's Saul Ministry. Solomon, of course, would be doing apologetics. Intellectually trying to convince people. The, I told the pastors yesterday, there's only one true apologist I know about, that is Ravi Zak. But I said, do you want to be like Ravi Zak? He travels three times, uh, three quarters of a year, he's on the plane, traveling, traveling, traveling. And every trip is an excruciating pain for him because his back is held together with titanium rods. So what he's doing is not apologetics, it's a revelation of who God is in his pain. You want to be an apologetic? Choose that path. Eight years old? Close to 80? Can you travel like that? Oh, one sore toe, we won't come to church. 
Yesterday one Rona say, saying, Pastor, I was late 10 minutes. Why? Because I had a skin infection. I said, I said, man, we are men. If you have a skin infection, how does it matter? You are not a woman, right? You got a pimple on your nose, so you have to. What are you talking about? Late for a pastor's conference because you had a skin infection. You will meet all kinds. And you have to consume all of this. That's why God told uh, Peter, gave the vision, the sheet coming with all kinds of things. He says, kill and eat. Meaning in ministry, you will meet all these kinds of people. Devour them. <laughs> so you see, Saul was absolutely carnal. He only thought about himself. He built a monument for himself. Solomon was very, very intellectual. But in the new covenant, God will say, I will build the broken tents of David. David, the tabernacle of David. He was a truly spiritual man. So you have to ask yourself, what am I? Like we keep on saying, if you look like a duck, walk like a duck, talk like a duck, sway like a duck, you must be a duck. I told the young people, see, it's easier talking to those people, but because you see the difference in talking to that country is Bhutan is a monarchy. So in a monarchy, they are always taught to respect authority because it's a sovereign monarchy. It's a monarchy. So they also, it's very easy. They will take anything because the minute you step forward, they will respect you simply because they've been taught to respect their entire system. Okay? I said, in our days, when we were young, we used to buy a jeans with great sacrifice because that was, that was expensive. And then you used to wear it, wear it, wear it, wear it, wear it, wear it. They used to tear. Now you go buy wear torn jeans. <laughs> I said, what's wrong with you? God told Jacob, sanctify yourself and move to Bethel, the house of prayer. So before he can move, his brothers, his sons and his household all have to sanctify, throw away all their gods and take all their earrings off. I said, now worship leader has got a earring here, another one has got a earring here and where all rings are there, nobody knows. I said, what's wrong with you kids? In some way, I was a little bit of this. I didn't talk all this to them. And I said, you see, you're not sure about your identity. I said, do you remember? I said, you know your king, right? Yeah, I said, when I was teaching there 20 years ago, the king knocked on my door, on the classroom. He knocked on the classroom door and he opened and said, I, I said, excuse me, sir, can I take 10 minutes? Why is he so confident? Because he knows who he is. He knows who his father is. He doesn't need anything else. I said, you need these rings and this thing and colored. Look like said, some of you look in their language. So you look like roosters. You don't look like humans. You got all these colors over there. And they will sit there and laugh. They have no issue. They don't get offended or anything at all. I said, the whole issue in the church is you have an identity crisis. You don't know whose you are. You don't know whose you are. The minute whose you know whose you are, that sets you free. You know, my father, he owns the earth. And the heavens. And you know what? He chose this way. I'm choosing that way. That's what God is talking about. How can he have two identities? That you come all, especially let me talk to the girls. All of you look so nice, so decent, so well dressed. And then when you go to work, you have ripped jeans. And exposing half your insides. You tell me, I'm not talking about, I honestly asked them, I told them, let me ask you a question, your, your fashion. Did Buddhists teach you this? No. Did Hindus teach you this? 
No. Did um, Muslims teach you this? No. Who taught you this? Christians. I said, do you realize where the problem is? And I said this exactly. When man fell, he was so close to God. At the point of fall, two emotions take him over. What is that? Fear and shame. When man has come to the end of the world's judgment, it is so far away from God. Two things take over. He is afraid of nobody and is absolutely shameless. And I said, you look in the world, men and women, they don't care about anybody, no authority, you cannot speak to me, and they're absolutely shameless in the way they dress and talk and walk. He says, be careful. You do not know who you are. You do not know who you are. You do not know whose you are. That's why carnal Christians always have a split identity. They love Christ. Meeting? They love money, they love food, they love clothes, and all this they will say, thank you Lord for the blessings, thank you Lord for the blessings. If he ever takes the stick, they will run for their life. They hate the cross. They love the blessings. They hate the cross. They love Christ minus the cross. I didn't say this. God said it through his servant Paul. Philippians chapter 3, 18. For many walk. Is he talking about the world? No, he's talking about the church. So nothing has changed in 2000 years. Then also they had this problem. Now also we have this problem. For many walk of whom I have told you often, I'm telling you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. They're not enemies of Christ. They are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Why? Whose end is? Ah, please remember this. If you are a carnal Christian, you are close to destruction. Yesterday I told the pastors, Jesus comes about the free will and not touching. Jesus comes to gatherings and he finds a madman in gatherings who is among the tombs. He is tied up with chains. He breaks the chains, cuts himself. This is a pitiable state in gatherings. Why? Because thousands of years ago, when the generation had to move into the promised land, the tribe of God said, we will be on this side of Jordan. That's when Moses says, go over there and fight. Then choose if you want to be. If you don't fight for your brothers, when they are fighting for their life and the promises of God, your sin will find you out. These guys, dudes go, they fight, they win, they come back and cross the river Jordan and stay on this side. The problem is, whenever an invasion takes place, you are the first to fall. You are the first to fall. Because Jordan is your line of defense. That's where you died to self. On the other side is Gilgal, where you are completely identified with Christ. But you are on this side. You crossed Jordan, you went to Gilgal, got circumcised, then you crossed over and you went to God. And the history of it, when the Son of Man comes, he finds a man in gatherings, absolutely demon-possessed, cutting himself, walking among the dead. God says, you know what? If you, yeah, end is destruction. Why? Because your God is your belly, your appetites. He says, be careful. Whose glory is in their shame. Isn't that what we see in the... The more you expose, the more they are glorified. More they are glorified. Shame. And who set their mind on? Earthly things. Then he interjects a but over there in verse 20. Our, for our citizenship is in heaven. Is your citizenship is heaven? Just don't say yes. Read the full verse. Are you eagerly waiting for Jesus to come? 
The only thing I tell Jesus, I'm not boasting, only telling Jesus, just don't come because I know I haven't finished my race. I haven't finished my race. I got some more I think to catch up to do. Then you come please. <laughs> nothing waiting. I want to send my son married, my daughter's married. No, 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 no. Nothing like that. You just come. Whether they get married or unmarried, it's irrelevant. Whether they get a job or they are jobless, it's all irrelevant. The thing is that, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Our citizenship is of heaven. Citizenship is of? Let me ask you this question. I asked the pastors two days back. Jesus said, many will come to me that day and say, Lord, Lord, I did this in your name. Incredible work. I did this in your name. I did this in your name. Prophetic, prophecy, deliverance, all that. What did Jesus say? I, away from me, I never knew you. Workers of? Workers of? So it's question. He's saying, I did not know you, but he's saying, I know you. See, I look at Shravan. Okay, just an excuse. Okay, uh, just an example. Excuse me. If I say, hey, Chor, does that mean I know him? Of course I know him. I know he's a Chor, right? Otherwise, how can I say he's a Chor? Am I right? If I tell, hey, Chor, that means I know you. I know you have a habit of stealing, right? What does he call them? Workers of? So he knows them. He knows them. Oh, he knows them. Please don't ever think the God of universe doesn't know everybody. He says, but I know you, but I don't know you in terms of salvation. I know you. I don't know you in terms of righteousness. I know you in terms of unrighteousness. I know you. It's not that I don't know you, but I know you. Please be careful about all these things, okay? We only dealt with identity. We haven't gone into affliction. There are nine things Moses identified himself with. Scripture says he chose, he chose affliction. He chose affliction. Let's go there. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God. That's why I watch your fellowship. See, people don't want to fellowship with everybody. They choose their own little cliques. You know why? Because to fellowship with the other one is a little affliction is there. Either you have to humble yourself or you have to study and raise yourself. You have to do one of these two to be able to afflict, to, to fellowship with everybody. That's why in the Bible, in Acts chapter 2, the order is this doctrine and then fellowship. Because fellowship is a test of whether you receive the true doctrine or not. So Paul who has received the doctrine of Christ is to fellowship, is able to fellowship with Peter, James and Barnabas and sit with and eat with the Gentile who came in yesterday because he has identified himself with true doctrine. Jesus could talk to Nicodemus, he could talk to his disciples and play with the children because he knows who he is. To identify also means to choose affliction. And Jesus was afflicted. Isaiah 53, 4 and word 7 all says Jesus was afflicted. Afflicted. He was afflicted. I want to look at Acts chapter 9 and verse 15 to 16. Surely, and he was stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Okay, let's Jesus aside because his affliction is different from our affliction. 
because he was being afflicted for our sanctification. So there's a difference. The Lord said to him, to whom? Ananias. Go for his chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Let me honestly ask you. Can God show anybody today in the beginning of their ministry how much they have to suffer? Will they ever get in? First they don't get in even if God calls. And if they are willing, they will ask what is my salary? And is there insurance also? They want medical insurance for self, wife and children. Today's ministry. And then if they have to be invited for something, is there fair? TA and DA. A DA in, includes doctor's allowance also if you fall sick in that place. To this man, within three days, God is telling, I'm going to show him something. You see, God knows each one. God says, this man I can show him and he will take it. I see his surrender on the road. I can tell him, he's going to be afflicted for my name's sake. And you know what? He won't flinch. He won't back off. He won't back off. He will stand the course. He will run his race. My question to you is, can God show you? Or me? If he shows us, will we go? And the problem is, you don't choose affliction unless you preach Christ crucified. They go together. They go together. Why do you think they hated Moses? Because of his lifestyle. They must have been telling in Hebrew, Malkaria, why can't he be like us? He's happy with manna. He's happy with water. And sometimes he leaves manna and water and fast for 40 days. Why can't he be like us? Once in a while eat some fish and meat. But he said, I've said no to Egypt. I said no to Egypt. I've forsaken Egypt. We are not talking about food. We are not talking about food here. We are talking about the principles of the world. If anybody sees you, what do they identify you with? It's a question. And Moses refused to be identified with Egypt. Though he was not a slave in Egypt, was a prince in Egypt. So can we choose affliction? Can we, like Paul said, Galatians 6.14, what? God forbid that I should boast except in the cross. Meaning he says, I will not boast about anything, but I will boast. What is that? The cross of Jesus Christ. Now my question to you is that Paul, I mean, Uncle Paul, Apostle Paul, I don't know what I have to call him when I reach there, okay. Because we will be all ageless. No, I think I can call him by name. We are ageless, same age, everybody. Why do you boast about the cross? Why do you boast about the cross? And he tells something here, interesting. By the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's not talking about his own cross. He's talking about the cross of Jesus Christ. Okay, there are two crosses. The cross of Jesus Christ and his cross. By the cross? No. By whom? See, we look at the cross minus Jesus. It has no power. You take Jesus off the cross, the cross has no power. Millions, hundreds and thousands of people have been crucified on the cross. None of them saved me except him. The cross doesn't save me. It is Christ who was crucified on the cross that saves me. How many people before and after Christ has died, including a couple of years, Isis crucified so many Christians and they died on the cross. Did they save me? No. It's only one man who died on the cross who saved me. So he says, 
Not by which, by whom. By whom. What happens? The world dies to me. The world cannot be killed. It can only be destroyed by God at the end. The world cannot be destroyed. But he says there is something you can do. You can die to the world. The world has of no effect to you. Absolutely no effect to you. You can walk through anywhere, any place in the world. It has no effect on you because by him, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He says the world will not die. It will not. It will pass away one day when God decides in one hour, Babylon will be destroyed. Babylon, Babylon, one hour. And who will weep? The kings of Babylon and the merchants of Babylon will weep. Why? Kings are used to pleasure and merchants are used to treasure. And to this both, Moses turned his back to the pleasures of Egypt and the treasures of Egypt. And one day Babylon will be destroyed and two groups of people will cry who went after pleasure and who went after treasure. And Moses in the beginning turned his back to both. And God says, I have made Babylon a trembling cup in my hand and let this nation drink of it. This man at the age of 40 was making decisions incredible today with all of our knowledge we still struggle to make. He made a decision. I know my identity and I'm choosing affliction. And I look at my cross and I look at my Savior in whom the world is dead. That's why scripture says, he made all this decision seeing him who was invisible. These decisions can be made only if you see him. The reward is not enough. Because the devil can duplicate rewards and satisfy the carnal Christians. What do you want name? I'll give you a name now. How will you give? What, do you, what is your favorite talent? Music? No problem. I can give you talent. I can make you more famous than Madonna and all these people who he gave them that, that name. That's why they proclaim him. With the cross around their neck. They proclaim the devil, not Christ. He can give you anything you want. He said, all this is mine, see the glory, and I can give it to anyone I choose. All you need to do is worship me. So every reward that is open there, except for a couple of them, to Smyrna and this thing, can be duplicated here, and people will take it. But if you have seen him, if you have seen him, so the question is, have you seen him? Have you met the person of the Bible? The word of God? And the God of the word? I'm not saying you'll live a blameless perfect. You will fall. You may fall drastically and terribly in life. Even more terrible than David. But you know what? If you have seen him, you will rise. You will rise. You will get up. And that's his cry. His cry is not about anything. I personally believe very few new people knew what has happened. The whole country thinks they got a noble king. Look at this king. A, no, a soldier died and this king has taken his widow, has his own wife. What a noble king we have. Bethsaida has mourned. She is at peace. The kingdom is at peace. Things are all prospering. But the man who has met God is miserable. 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 He can't sleep, he can't eat, he's just wasting away and his cry is, Lord, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. I know I'm saved, I'm not condemned, but you know what? I can't sing anymore. There's no psalm coming, no songs coming. Please don't take the joy of your salvation. 
And that's the question I ask everywhere. I know you have problems. I said, I got more problems than you. But where is your joy? Where is your joy? How can you meet the king of joy and not have joy? How can you not encounter this man and not have joy in your life? How can you meet this man and not be enamored by what he has spoken? What he has spoken? How is it possible? I'm not talking to unbelievers outside the church for what? I'm talking to believers. How is it possible? How is it possible? You know the little children who are scolded while going to school and they know they have done wrong, they have, but they got this huge school bag. Still when he's coming back in the home and the home, he doesn't go to the market. He's still dragging his feet back. Where? Home. That's David. You could knock him, you could kick him, you could hit him and he will still drag himself to the house of God. Son is dead. Seven days fasting on the place, shackcloth, ashes, all over ashes. He gets up. Son is dead. Dead. Washes himself, changes his clothes, anoints and goes to the temple and worships. Thank you Lord. Thank you. Thank you. What kind of a man is this? His servants don't understand. What kind of a man is this? Ask the prophet. I want to build a house for the Lord. Prophet says, go ahead. Do all that you king. Next day, prophet has to eat humble pie. What prophets and ministers eat is called humble pie. Okay, You eat ordinary pie, apple pie and all. We are often asked to eat humble pie, meaning go correct yourself. And he says, sorry, the Lord said you cannot build. Okay. Goes back where? House of the Lord. Sits down and says, who am I? Where did you pick me from? Wasn't like this? Isn't this all you did for me? Is it such a great thing you even... He's not looking at the negative. We always look at the negative. You can't build the house. But he says, on the other hand, I will build a house. And he will always have my son sitting on it forever and ever. So he forgets, I can't build the house. We will always remember that, magnify it and put it on the notice board also. I can't. God said, pastor said, I can't. That's not David. He says, but who am I? Lord, who am I that gave me a promise my seed will sit on the throne forever? Who am I? You can always see responses by people who have met God and those who have only heard about God. And the invitation is to know Him. To know Him. The invitation today is still that you still do not know Him, know Him. And if you have known Him, know Him even more. This is an endless Endless journey of knowing God. Knowing God. It's defined by prayer and the word. This morning we'll stand up. And we'll stand up to pray. Just make it a very personal prayer. Just say, Lord, like I keep saying, my name is Goofy, but I love you and I know you love me. I don't ever question, do you love me? I only question myself, do I love you enough? Do I love you enough, Lord? Is this what I was searching for? Is this whom I was searching for? Like the old crazy songs, looking for love in all the wrong places. That's a Samaritan man songs. I was looking for love in the, all the wrong places. Then finally I found by the well, the seventh man waiting for me. And once I met him, I drank. I drank. If you go to Bhutan, and you buy bottled water. I actually forgot that bottle in the airport at Hyderabad. I wanted to bring it to you. It's called living water. It's bottled drinking water, living water. 
brought out by a believer. Its label is living water. So Benny also asked me, so I, was, I said, did you see this Benny? He said, yeah, I saw it. I was asking, why is it called living water? I said, take the bottle, give me, I said, take the bottle. I said, turn it around. I said, look at the bottom. I said, yes, look at the bottom. I said, look carefully. I said, what is written? It's written, John 4, 12. said, in underground churches, we have many ways of proclaiming the gospel, even through a bottle. Living water, turn the bottom, John 4.12, check 4.12, come to me. I've come to give you living water. <laughs> living water. Okay, you know why? Simply, there are restrictions. But there are still ways to proclaim the gospel. That there is one who has come to give you life. And that is life eternal. And he did not buy it for you. He paid it for you with his own life. With his own life. Let's come to him this morning. And say, Lord, I'm just sorry for one thing. I did not love you enough. That's what I want to say sorry about. I've never loved you enough. Help me, Lord, to love you. Father, this morning we just come to you, Lord. 4,000 or more years ago, Moses could make an incredible decision and identify himself so completely with you when you hadn't even come in the physical, when you hadn't even lived in this body and died on the cross. He, by faith looking at you, could make such an incredible decision. How much more can we who are caught on this side of the cross for to us, your death is real history. We know you came, not you will come. You came, you died for us. Moses cannot say that, that you died for him. I can say it confidently, you died for me. Yet we struggle with our identity. We want to be known and part of the world in everything. Because we do not want to identify with you. Father, today we just want to Confess and ask for forgiveness. We haven't truly loved you, Lord. We truly, truly haven't loved you. Forgive us, Lord, for that lack of love. We've broken the, the greatest commandment when you said, love me with all your heart. And we confess, we haven't loved you that way. We try to find our meaning our identity in so many things in our work in our family in our name in our salary in our clothes without realizing we had only one identity in Christ and in Christ alone Today I pray, Father, every one of us who have heard this word and others through the days, weeks, years, would truly, truly find and be satisfied with that identity you have given. Christ. In Christ. The body of Christ. The church of Christ. The bride of Christ. Everything. In Christ alone. Nothing outside. I pray today there would be a death of the world in us. A death, a real death. 
We'll take the sword of the spirit and lay it at the neck. We'll take the axe and lay it at the root. Let it start today, Lord. Today, not one more day. Because your word says when the Holy Spirit speaks, it is today. And it says, do not harden your heart to die to self. So that Christ, Christ would live. We would enjoy Christ. And one day, truly, we would be able to say like your servant Paul, for me to live is Christ. And die is gain. Because I live by faith now in Christ. And when I die, I will see him in sight. Either way, it's only Christ. There have been this cloud of witnesses who have gone ahead of us, Lord. And let us not forget them. For every one of them point to you. And as the writer of Hebrews says today, we pray, help us to keep our eyes fixed on Christ Jesus. The author, the finisher, the perfecter of our faith. Because one day in our life we heard, come, and we obeyed. But subsequently we forgot the other invitations. And today, we renew our commitment, Lord. We want to come back to you and keep going with you, Lord. For there is none like you. We just want to thank you. We just want to praise you. We just want to worship you, Lord. Thank you, thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. By faith we lift up holy hands and we bless your holy name, Lord. Bless your holy name. Bless your holy name. And by faith we open our lips and we say, we proclaim, thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever and ever. Thank you, Father. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and abide with each one of us. Amen and amen.